You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 3. Incidentally, if you do not have a Bible, please take the Pew Bible as the church's gift to you. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea (coughs) and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, A loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry, against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. 
Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. This is God's word. Father, this is unfamiliar material to us. Lord, startle us from our complacency. Let this message be received of the spirit with which it's sent. Lord, work a work in us that honors you and gives you the place you deserve in our lives and in our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first television appeared in 1925. It had a one-inch wide screen consisting of 30 lines. And so its picture was not only tiny, it had the clarity of a modern television at a rate of about 5%. That was how blurry it was, about 5% of a modern TV. Uh, over the years, uh, TV rapidly developed uh, with the advent of cathode ray tubes and color broadcasting and digital signaling and eventually high definition. And so today, the average television has a 52-inch screen with 2.1 million distinct pixels allowing a startling degree of vividness and clarity in what we watch. Now today we begin a study in the short book of Zephaniah, one of the lesser known parts of the Bible. And Zephaniah offers us a high definition, vivid, clear picture of its subject, the day of the Lord. And that time when God will directly intervene in this world to settle his accounts to unleash his wrath on the unrepentant, and to finally bring his people into the joy that he has promised us. And over the next three weeks, we will see Zephaniah's vivid description of God's judgment and the glory that awaits. And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Zephaniah. It's right between the books of Habakkuk and Haggai. If that doesn't help you too much, uh, you, again, you can find it on page 740 in the Pew Bible. And today we're going to look at Zephaniah 1.1 through chapter 2, verse 3. And we will see today, in vivid high definition, the anger of God. And we're going to consider four points. First, we'll meet the prophet Zephaniah. Second, the day of the Lord is coming on the whole world. Third, the day of the Lord is coming on God's people. And fourth, how should we respond to the truth about the day of the Lord? Now we start with our first point, in which we meet the prophet Zephaniah. Look at Zephaniah 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. We learn three things here. First, this book is the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. This is not something Zephaniah made up. The hard things he says here aren't just his opinions. The predictions aren't guesswork. This is the sure and certain word of the living God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Every part of the Bible is God's word, including this book. 
And so God intends this book to examine us and convict us and correct us and grow us. When it lambasts sin, we need to listen because God tells us the truth. When this book decrees doom, we need to listen because God's promises come to pass. And when this book beautifully describes salvation as it will do in chapter 3, we need to listen because God is faithful to save. Now, yes, this book might be unfamiliar to us, but know that it comes from God and it contains truth. It is truth and it's for our good. And the second thing we learn in verse 1 is that our author is Zephaniah. Yes, the Bible is God's word, but remember it did not fall from the sky. God inspired people to write it. 2 Peter 1 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the man that God used to write this book was Zephaniah. We know very little about him. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. And this book doesn't tell us anything about him except his ancestry. Now, this record of his ancestry is unique. Usually, the Old Testament prophets give us their names, sometimes the names of their fathers. But Zephaniah alone traces his lineage back four generations. Why? Well, probably because someone in this list is famous. And the name he traces back to is Hezekiah. And there was a famous Hezekiah in the Old Testament. He was a king. And so perhaps Zephaniah was part of the royal family. And that makes sense because this book shows us he was very familiar with what the elites of Jerusalem were up to. Now the third thing we learn in verse 1 is when Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of King Josiah. Before Josiah came to the throne, the Israelite kingdom of Judah had been ruled by some really wicked kings who had led God's people into idolatry. They worshipped idols from Phoenicia, Baal, and Asherah. They worshipped the host of heaven, the stars. They worshipped an idol from Ammon, Molech, who demanded the human sacrifice of children. Under these kings, Judah became so wicked the Bible says it became worse than the pagan Gentile nations. Now, that's always tragic when that can be said about someone who is associated with God, right? Wow, he's worse than an unbeliever? Well, here, 2 Kings 21 tells us that about the entire nation that belonged to God, they all became worse than unbelievers. But things changed when Josiah came to the throne at the age of eight, 2 Chronicles 34, verse 2 says, Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. And in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and metal images, and they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. Josiah began to serve the Lord at the age of 16. At 20, he launched a vigorous campaign to purge the nation of idolatry. When he was 26, he had the temple cleansed, and there they rediscovered the book of the law. And armed with the scripture, Josiah led his people in obedience to the Lord. 2 Chronicles 34, 32 says, Josiah took away all the abominations and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God all his days, they did not turn away from following the Lord. 
So Josiah's reign is a time of revival. It was also a time of massive geopolitical change in the region. So Zephaniah lived during eventful times. Now, chapter two of this book tells us a little bit about the world as it stood when Zephaniah wrote. And what it says is consistent with how things were at the start of Josiah's reign, not the end. You say, well, so what? Well, that tells us Zephaniah prophesied before the revival. So this prophecy was one of the things God used to bring revival among his people. God used this book to help a bunch of sinful people repent. You know, today we live in increasingly evil times, don't we? And people around us are decreasingly interested in Christianity. And many Christians today long for and talk about and pray for revival. And to counteract the perceived decline of the church in our day, there have been all kinds of books and strategies put out there that claim to know how to spark a revival, how to make Christianity popular again. And many churches have followed these recipes. Some have grown quite large, most haven't. But what's interesting is when we look to the Bible to see how God sparked revival in the past, it had nothing to do with the stuff in these books. Revival didn't come from turning worship into entertainment, from music appealing to a young demographic, from short sermons filled with pop psychology. No, when God inspired real revival in the past, it wasn't through a slick, worldly presentation devoid of content. It was by the stark declaration of his truth. And friends, if we want to see revival in our time, that means that it has to start with us. And we have to get serious about the things of God. And maybe a good place to start is to read a book like Zephaniah that God used to start revival in the past. A book that confronts us with God's truth to wake us from our spiritual slumber to get us serious about the things of the Lord. And we see serious truths immediately now in our second point, that the day of the Lord is coming upon the whole world. Look at verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This is not what church growth experts would urge us to preach today. But this is the word of Yahweh. He is going to bring shocking destruction on the whole world. Now, these verses will remind us of the flood from Genesis. God's answer to the truth of Genesis 6-5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Because of that, God unleashed global destruction, global death. In the same way now, Zephaniah expects, he sees another global catastrophe, another unmaking of creation. Verse 3 prophesies the end of man and beast, the reversal of the sixth day of creation. He also sees the end of birds, the end of the fish. That didn't happen in the flood. This is the end of the fifth day of creation, or the reversal of it. So this destruction will be even more total than the Genesis flood. This is the end of life. It is the end of everything, verse 2 says. Even the rubble is blown away. This is about as bleak a picture as we find in the Bible. And why must this take place? Verse 3 speaks of the wicked. See, Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. 
And friends, we are all sinners, and so the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is coming. This is described even more vividly at the end of the chapter. Look down at verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The day of the Lord, the time when God will settle all his accounts, it's coming. And Zephaniah wants his readers to know it's coming quickly. It's near, he says, and if you missed it, he says it again. It's near a second time. It's hastening fast. Friends, as we sang, the sands of time are sinking. There is little time left before God's judgment explodes into our world. And when it comes, what will it be like? Verse 14, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. When the most hardened veteran of war sees what the wrath of God entails, even he will shriek in terror. That's how awful it will be. Verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Clouds and thick darkness is how the Old Testament often describes God descending to earth, like at Mount Sinai. And when God visibly invades this world to set all things right, it will be a moment of horror for all who will see it, and that will be everybody. Darkness will cover the skies, just like it did when God poured his wrath on Jesus, except now God's going to pour his wrath on the earth. And then there will be an overpowering tsunami of inescapable terror, boundless sorrow, and everlasting pain. When the day of the Lord comes, everything meant by the word ruin will become a reality. And as the world sees God is real and he is coming to deal with them, they will say what Isaiah said when he beheld God's holiness. Woe is me, for I am undone. Verse 16, he says, it's a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. In the ancient world, these are the things that summoned men to battle. The day of the Lord will be a time of alarm. And yes, people will try to defend themselves, but to no avail. Even the most fortified cities will fall before his justice. Verse 17 says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. This is one of the most disturbing pictures in the whole Bible. And why will this confusion and awful violence happen? Because of sin. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins shall die. And the death that we deserve is not peaceful death at a ripe old age. Sin deserves horrific execution, violent torment, basically what Jesus endured on the cross. And that torment is going to fall on this world. Verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In ancient times, when a really strong country came against a weak country, the weak country could sometimes escape by paying a bribe to the, small, the, the strong country to go away. But God says when he comes in wrath, people won't be able to buy their way out. When God comes for war, he's not appeased by anything less than full justice. Verse 18, And in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all of the inhabitants of the earth. This is total judgment. All the earth, 
all its inhabitants are consumed totally and immediately. Why? Because God's jealous. Now, jealousy is often considered a bad thing in our society. You know, it's a sign of a toxic relationship, people say. And, and sometimes that's quite true. I've seen jealousy lead people to domineer their spouse in a very evil and controlling way. But not all jealousy is bad. Sometimes it's appropriate. Sometimes we should defend our relationship against outside interference. And we read here about God's jealousy for humanity. And that is appropriate. Because God owns all things, including us. He made us. He is our Lord. But instead of giving him the loyal love he is owed, we have preferred all kinds of things to him. We have provoked his jealousy, and so judgment falls. Worldwide destruction. Not a flood, because God swore in Genesis 9 never to drown the world again. No, this will be destruction by fire. 2 Peter 3.5 says, The heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, this is one of the most horrific pictures of divine wrath in the whole Bible. This is an aspect of God we don't like to think about. We like to think about the attitudes or the attributes and actions of God that make us glad. But Zephaniah wants to confront us with the truth that God is good and just. And because of that, God hates what is wrong and evil, and he will avenge it. And to make us grasp this truth, Zephaniah presents it to us with this awful vividness. He shows us God's vengeance to make us see the awfulness of sin. To show us this is what our sin really deserves so that we'll see it's so much worse than we realize. And Zephaniah wanted his readers to wake up and know this judgment is coming soon, imminently. Now wait a minute, you might say. Zephaniah wrote this 2,600 years ago. And the earth hasn't been consumed by fire yet. A full and sudden end has not been made of all the inhabitants of the earth. Why should I believe this? Well, when you read the prophets, what you discover is that sometimes what they prophesy as one event is actually fulfilled in many events across time. For instance, there are many prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Some speak of him as one who will die for the sins of many. Some speak of him as a king who triumphs and rules forever. Quite often, these prophecies appear in the same book, sometimes even next to each other. And that's because when the prophets looked into the future, God let them see the whole. But they didn't get to see the parts so clearly. They understood Messiah was coming. They didn't seem to understand that he was coming twice, separated by thousands of years. It's been compared to like looking at mountains from a distance. What might appear at first like one large mountain is actually a whole set of peaks and valleys, right? So it also is with the day of the Lord. Zephaniah's first two and a half chapters say judgment will fall upon the whole world, upon all the nations, and upon Judah. And as history has unfolded, what we've learned is that God has brought about not just one day of the Lord, but many. Because the day of the Lord did fall on Judah. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. The day of the Lord did fall on all the nations mentioned in chapter 2. We'll see that next week. And the judgments decreed against various nations in this book, including Judah, they all happened in real space and time. So while the final day of the Lord has not yet happened, Zephaniah was right when he said the day of the Lord was near. 
the people of Judah at this time when they heard this prophecy, they were only 50 years out from facing God's wrath. Some of the nations in chapter 2 faced it even sooner than that. And friends, down through the ages, God's judgment has continued to explode at different points upon different nations and different people. The fact that final judgment has not yet happened does not mean that the world is safe from that possibility. No, all of these smaller outbursts of judgment across history instead testify to the fact that there will be one final outburst of wrath at the end. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. When Jesus returns, there will be inescapable sudden destruction. Most of us here are old enough to remember 9-11. There was a horror to the thing, not just the carnage, but the suddenness, the unexpectedness of it. The day of the Lord will be shocking like that, but the destruction will be infinitely worse. In one moment, everything as we know it will all end, not in an act of evil terrorism, but in an eruption of holy justice. So don't be deceived into thinking that the end is not coming. Yes, it's been a long time. Second Peter 3 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's not slow. He's kind. He's patient. He's giving us a chance to repent. But Zephaniah is right. The day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastening fast. It's coming, friends, and we deserve it. So we need to listen up. It's coming for the whole world. But first, Zephaniah says it's coming for his nation. And this now is our third point. The day of the Lord is coming for God's people. Look at verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Part of this first chapter is not really about worldwide judgment. It's really that judgment is going to fall on Judah and Jerusalem, which happened in the year 586 B.C. So this is a warning about things that happened thousands of years ago in a far-off place. You say, well, what possible relevance can this have for me? Well, in the Old Testament, the Israelites were the people of God, just as on this side of the cross, the church is the people of God. Now, that's not to say that every Israelite was saved any more than it's to say that every person in a church today is saved. Many more people claim the name of God than actually belong to him. But that's actually the point Zephaniah is going to make here. Judgment is coming upon God's people in this chapter because of what is called nominalism. People are claiming a connection to God while they don't actually have one. And God is angry about nominalism happening in Judah and Jerusalem. Well, friends, there's a lot of nominalism happening in the American church today, too. That's why 56% of self-proclaimed evangelicals believe that, quote, God accepts the worship of all religions. That's why professing Christians in America have a higher rate of divorce than those who don't profess Christ. That's why vastly more people claim to be Christians than the amount that actually attend church any given Sunday. So I think this passage is extremely relevant for us because in it we're going to learn what nominalism is and what God thinks about it and how he deals with it. 
Now, God identifies four expressions of nominalism here, and the first is this, claiming a connection to God while giving your true allegiance elsewhere. Look at verse 4. He says, And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Here's what's happening. People in Jerusalem are giving lip service to God. They swear by his name when they take oaths, but inwardly their hearts prefer idols, like Baal. Baal was a rain god, and Judah had an agricultural economy. So Baal was popular because rain made the people rich. Baal was also worshipped through illicit sexual practices. So here are those claiming to belong to God, worshipping a false god, because what their hearts really love is money and sexual sin. They also worshipped the host of heaven, the stars. And people thought the stars controlled their futures. And worshiping them was easy. You didn't have to go to the temple or the priests. You could just go up on your roof and do whatever you wanted and call it worship. So here are those that claim to belong to God, worshiping the creation rather than the creator, rejecting God's word about worship, redefining it to suit their own interests. Moreover, these people pay lip service to God while swearing in their hearts by Milcom. Milcom was the God they worshiped. And that's another name for Molech, that demonic idol that demanded child sacrifice. So here are people who nominally belong to God burning their children alive because they thought that by so doing, Molech would give them easier and richer lives. Well, that sounds a lot like the modern argument for abortion on demand, doesn't it? What we see here is nominalism. These people claim to belong to Yahweh but their true loyalties are to their wallets or their sexual urges or their ease and comfort. They say they belong to God, but they do and approve what God forbids. They worship in a manner contrary to God's word. They'll do whatever it takes to get rich. They practice astrology. Check that horoscope. They practice and support sexual immorality. They practice and support the murder of children. This list sounds like many who claim the name of Christ today, does it not? The worship of Baal and Molech and the stars is not gone. It still exists in our own time in different ways. Friends, where does your chief loyalty lie? Here's one simple test. When you don't attend church, why is that? Hebrews 10 says, let's assemble together regularly. Corporate worship is required of us. So when we don't attend to that requirement, why? Well, maybe it's because whenever you're sick, you don't come. Okay, that's a great reason not to come to church. But maybe it's for other reasons. Are there things in your life you consistently prioritize over corporate worship? Entertainment, convenience, social opportunities. If so, what is that saying about your ultimate loyalties? Or here's another question. If by sinning you knew you could get rich immediately... <coughs> You could retire right now and live a life of luxury. You can indulge in all the pleasures of the flesh. Would you do it? Of course, I think we're all tempted. But be honest. Do you know in your heart you'd leap at one of these things if given the chance, even though doing so would betray Christ? What's that say about your allegiance? 
Friends, our loyalty to Jesus must outweigh every other duty or desire. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. We cannot serve God and something else. Now, our loyalty to Jesus has to exceed even our loyalty to family members. Matthew 10, 37 says, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's a radical demand, isn't it? That's what Jesus requires. Not the leftovers of our devotion, time, and energy after we've served ourselves and our interests. Jesus demands our first loyalty because he will not share his glory with another, especially with idols of sin and self. Now, maybe you hear this and you think, well, whatever, man. I, I know I'm good with God. I prayed the prayer. I don't have to listen to this. I can live however ever I want, and God, he's got to, to put up with it, and he'll save me in the end, right? Friend, don't be a fool. What is God's opinion about nominalism? He says here, in plain language, he's going to destroy everything related to it. He's going to destroy the idolatrous priests of Baal, all the functionaries who lure God's people away from God and into sin, they're going to get destroyed. More than that, God says he will destroy those who are actually engaging in nominalism. Because nominalism is not a sign of a relationship with God. It's a sign of no relationship with God. It is proof that you remain under God's judgment. So that's the first expression of nominalism here, divided loyalties. The second involves a total indifference to God's presence and ward. Look, look at verse 6. Here God says he's going to destroy those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Here's a tragic situation. People who once followed the Lord, who seemed like they were close to him, who fell away, who now evidence no spiritual life who do not bring their lives before God and his word for direction. Often we'll talk about such people as backsliding, but here we learn that really this is apostasy. This is a falling away. It is a repudiation of the faith. Friends, the doctrine of eternal security is true. And Jesus says in John 10, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's true. The true believer will be saved. And it's also true that from time to time, true believers will fall into sin. But the Bible is very clear. One characteristic of real saving faith is that it perseveres to the end. There's never a final departure, a final repudiation, a final desertion of it. Hebrews 3.14 says, We have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. True faith perseveres. And one way God perseveres us is by warning us in the Bible against falling away. And that's what we see here. This is a warning. Don't fall away. And we need this warning because there is something that looks like saving faith, which isn't saving faith. In John 2, you read about some crowds, and it says, though they believed in Jesus. But Jesus didn't believe in them, it says. In Acts 8, we're told that Simon the sorcerer believed and was baptized. And yet, just a few verses later, Peter says he's headed for eternal destruction. They had something that was a form of belief, but it wasn't the real thing. It wasn't saving faith. It was counterfeit. And one way to distinguish between true and false belief is that true faith perseveres while false faith doesn't. 
I know this is painful for many of us. Because many of us have friends and family members who used to seem like they walked with the Lord who do no longer. And friends, it's easy for us to say to ourselves, well, they're saved, I remember the good old days, and remain sort of satisfied with that and, and tell ourselves, I don't have to worry about that anymore. I get that that is emotionally unappealing. It's emotionally appealing. Friend, it's biblically unfaithful. True faith perseveres. And God here says those who have abandoned him are under his judgment. I've got to ask us here today, do we have real faith? Do we seek God? Do we love him? Do we want to know him better? Or are we drifting in indifference? Do we inquire of him as we once did? Do we bring our life before him in prayer? Do we seek direction from his word? Or are we just disinterested in what God says? Are we just going through the motions while inwardly we have checked out? Don't be deceived. God isn't. The third expression of nominalism here involves compromise with the world. Look at verse 8. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Here God objects to the clothing people are wearing. You say, well, why didn't know God had such an advanced fashion sense? Okay, that's not the issue here. Numbers 15 prescribed distinctive clothing for Israelite men because it was to be a visible reminder to obey God. But Judah didn't want that reminder. They wanted to be more like the world. So they rejected the distinctive things God required of them. Similarly, verse 9, On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. 1 Samuel 5 tells us this was a Philistine custom not to step on the threshold of their idolatrous temple. They would jump over it. Kind of like that game kids play, step on a crack, break your mama's back. Okay, this is a silly pagan superstition. But the Israelites were carefully observing it. And while they cared about this superstition, what did they ignore? Egregious sin in their master's house, in the temple, which was corrupted by financial impropriety and violence. So the Israelites have departed from the holiness and distinctiveness they were called to because they wanted to be more like the world around them. <coughs> Similar things are happening today in the American church. Many who claim Christ are willing to compromise the faith to become more palatable to the unbelieving world around us. And so many churches and denominations have compromised on biblical definitions of marriage and sexuality to appease the world. Or we punt on the truth of the Bible. We embrace theistic evolution or naturalistic explanations for the Bible's miracles. Or we just downplay the Bible. Celebrity pastor Andy Stanley said in last week's sermon, those who don't believe in the truthfulness of the Bible don't need to worry about it because, quote, the Bible is not the foundation of our faith. That's compromise. And while we compromise with the world, we ignore sin in our midst. There's been massive exposure of sexual abuse and financial impropriety in the church over the last decade. I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. I'm talking about the Southern Baptist Convention at prominent evangelical ministries like that of the late Ravi Zacharias. At the same time, prosperity heretics who fleece the unwary are still being given platforms in Christian bookstores and conferences. Friends, the compromise of Zephaniah's day continues in our own. 
But that's low-hanging fruit because the real question is where are we compromising with the world? Are we afraid to evangelize our coworkers because we don't want to imperil our jobs or our reputations? Are we willing to laugh at that dirty joke or compromise how we conduct ourselves with our friends because we want to fit in with them and not be labeled fanatical Christians? Are we trying to maintain a peace at home that really shouldn't be maintained because we're afraid of what would happen if we called out an unrepentant family member over their behavior? Where are we abandoning our obligations as believers to be distinct so that we fit in? And friends, when we do that, what are we saying about our priorities and allegiance? Remember Jesus' warning in Matthew 10, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The last expression of nominalism here involves practical atheism. Drop down to verse 12. He says, I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. He's talking about practical atheism. Oh yeah, we claim to be Christians, but in our hearts, truly, we don't think God is involved in our lives. He isn't going to do us good. He isn't going to do us bad because he isn't going to do anything because he really isn't there. That whatever association we claim with Christianity is just a show to appease our religious relatives, to appease our conscience, to tell ourselves we are upholding the family traditions and setting a good example for the next generation. But truly, in our hearts, we don't really think God is there or that he will hold us to account for how we've lived. This is the essence of nominalism. Thinking that all of this, prayer and scripture and worship, is form only with no substance. This is what Paul warns about in 2 Timothy 3.5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Many people do this today. Friend, are you one of them? In your heart, do you believe God is real? That he is all-knowing and all-powerful? That he took on humanity as Jesus? Do you really believe he paid for your sins with his death? And that he rose from the dead bodily? That he is in heaven today? And that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead? That he really will judge this world to the standard he said he would? And save his people to the uttermost? In your heart, is this real to you? Does your life show that it's real to you? I fear that for many today, including maybe some of us, we have just gone along with this for so long because it was expected of us and we've kept the reality at arm's length all these years and we've never really trusted Christ. Friend, is this you? Are you just playing a game? Many people in Zephaniah's day were. And what did God think about it? We'll look at verse 7. He says, be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near, and the Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. When we stand before God in the end, we will stand silently before his awesome holiness and greatness. But even now, as we just hear his word, we need to listen with humble silence, because this is no joke. The wrong response here is to tune this out. I don't need to listen to this. I'm going to stick my head in the sand and think about something else. Friend, that's not going to do you any good because God's wrath really is coming. The day is near. There is an urgency to this. Time is almost gone. And now here's another shocking picture of judgment. He says, the day of the Lord is like a sacrificial meal. The guests have come to eat, but what's for dinner? What is the sacrifice to be slain? The context tells us it's Judah and Jerusalem. 
Sin requires death, and they have not taken hold of the Lord's salvation, so they must die. And who's going to eat? Who are the guests? Well, they might be invading armies. Revelation 19 talks about birds eating the corpses of the slain. Either way, God is going to host a big dinner, and the unrepentant are the main course. What an awful picture. Look at verse 10. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. This is a picture of what happens when God's judgment falls on people. One of the great deceptions of life is that everything around us seems like it's destined to just continue forever as it is. Sometimes that deception is disrupted. Sometimes life comes crashing down. As Zephaniah says, that's going to happen in Jerusalem. The fish gate was the northernmost gate in Jerusalem. And in 586 B.C., God moved the Babylonian army down south. And there they were, north of Jerusalem, and in they came. And as they enter the fish gate, Zephaniah says, the people will begin to shriek as all they know and love ends. And the chaos then rolls across the city from district to district as calamity unfolds. God says it's like he is going to go through the city searching diligently for each person who requires judgment, and he will find them all. Many will die, and the survivors will lose everything. All they worked for and counted on, the futures they'd saved up for, in an instant, it's gone. Because when God's judgment overtakes you, you have no future, only ruin. And that's what happened for Jerusalem. Man, this is another bleak picture, is it not? And what Zephaniah says is this is not only for the worst of the worst. This isn't just about Hitler or Mao or the worst offenders of the ancient world. These are the Israelites. And they're not being condemned here for mass murder or terrorism or something like that. No, this is God's anger about nominalism. If that's the case, what does his anger look like about worse sin? If that's not enough to astonish us into the silence described in verse 7, I don't know what is. God's wrath is ferocious. If we don't want to face it, we need to examine ourselves. Because the God who said this is the same God we've come to worship today. You know, 1 Peter 4.17 says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of our God? Here's the application. Today, friend, if you claim the name of Christ, is your life marked by nominalism, by divided loyalties, functional apostasy, accommodating the world, practical atheism? Friend, be warned. Claiming Christ doesn't mean you really have him. And if your life shows that you don't, repent and believe the gospel. Today, if you know that you don't know Christ, I solemnly warn you, if what we just read is the judgment God brought on his own house to put it in order, what worse judgment awaits those who knowingly say, oh yeah, I don't want anything to do with that. Friend, turn to Christ before the wrath of God overtakes you. This brings us to our last point. How should we respond to the truth about the day of the Lord? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Here there's just a hint of good news. Zephaniah says, let's get together quickly, before judgment falls, while there's still a chance to respond. But that window of opportunity is quickly closing. It's like when the wind blows away the chaff, poof, it's gone. That's how short-lived is this opportunity. So respond now. Don't delay. You might not get another chance later. So well, how should we respond? Well, look at verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Zephaniah is not preaching salvation by works. Ephesians 2 says, By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now this is what Zephaniah is saying. Seek the Lord. Because if you want to be safe when the wrath of God comes, the only safe place is with God. Nowhere else will protect you. Flee to God. And he says, those who do are the humble. The arrogant person says, I don't worry about my sin. It's not a problem. You know, God, he's probably not real. That person's lost. Remember the Pharisee? He prayed, oh God, I'm thankful. I'm not like all those other people. Jesus said he found no mercy. But Matthew 5, 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about somebody whose bank account is poor. He's talking about someone who's humble, who sees they have nothing to commend themselves to God who just needs God's mercy. That they're totally dependent upon His grace. The attitude of the tax collector who prayed, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew he couldn't save himself. He knew his need for God's grace and he found forgiveness. Friends, that's what it means to be humble. We say, recognizing, I can't save myself, I need God's mercy and grace. And only in that place can we be saved. And friends, there is great news, which is that God has provided a means of salvation. He has given his own son. Chapter 1, verse 7 said, The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. And we said that was a message of judgment, and it was. But on this side of the cross, when we see that, we should think of salvation. Because yes, God has prepared a sacrifice. 1 Peter 1 says, You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is the sacrifice who has been offered. And all the wrath and ruin of this passage that we should have borne forever, Jesus took it all on himself. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Jesus' sacrifice, God's anger is totally satisfied. And his death allows us to be clothed with Jesus' righteousness. Yes, friends, God has prepared a sacrifice. And that sacrifice consecrates a group of people who will enjoy a banquet in his presence forever. But how do we make sure that's us? How do we access this salvation? Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. We've got to turn aside from the life of sin we've been living by turning to Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Because He's God and man. And He died on the cross for our sins and He is risen from the dead. Salvation is available if we trust in Him alone. 
And if we come to Jesus with humble, repentant faith, we will find righteousness. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And salvation will produce in us that desire to obey and be righteous, Zephaniah describes here. And yes, we won't do that perfectly. But saved people should hunger for righteousness and obedience. So that's what Zephaniah is talking about. We need to come to God in humble, repentant faith because there's salvation by humbling ourselves before Jesus alone. But notice the last thing Zephaniah says here. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Oh, we don't like that word perhaps. Because that sounds like uncertainty. And we like certainty. We like assurance, and we should. The Bible gives us a whole book, 1 John, that gives us tests to examine ourselves to see if we're really in the faith. But while it's good to have assurance of a true salvation, it's tragic to have a false assurance of salvation we don't really have. And I've known people in this boat whose lives don't look anything like how 1 John describes a true believer. They don't believe true doctrine. They don't want to obey God's word. They don't love believers. And when you talk to them about their lives, they'll say, oh, I'm just so sure I'm saved. I prayed a prayer once. I had an experience, you know. But their life testifies against their profession of faith. Friends, that's not biblical conversion. Maybe you know people like that today. Maybe you are like that today. What people in this boat need is to be shaken of their false assurance. They need a warning. In fact, friends, I think we all need a warning. And so maybe we're uncomfortable with what Zephaniah says here. But we should trust God and his spirit. That it's right that Zephaniah does not give us a comforting pat on the shoulder and say, There, there. Don't worry about all this judgment stuff. You are exempt. That instead he only says, Perhaps you may be hidden in the day of the Lord. Because while it's good to have assurance, it's good for us to keep on our toes and have some fear of God so that we do not be complacent about our lives and our sin, which is so easy to do. So we should read this passage as we read any warning passage in the Bible. This is a reality check to make us stop and take inventory of our lives, to see where we're straying from the Lord and to drive us back on our knees before God. Because wrath is coming, but there is refuge. There is mercy, and it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. But if you will not turn to Jesus, make no mistake, the day of the Lord is coming, and it is coming for you, and you will experience what is described in this book and worse forever. So please turn to Jesus and live. To conclude, may we today consider our ways. May God give us the wisdom to know whether we really belong to him or whether we are just nominalists. May God grant us all the, the grace to repent. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting.